I wonder if uh, any of you remember this image. Does anyone remember this image from earlier this year? This is a very young child who's in the air there being thrown from a looted and flaming building in South Africa. It's his mother who threw him. And there's bystanders there with arms out, ready to catch him as this building is erupting into flames. Can't you just imagine being that mother at that moment? Having to make that choice to throw the child down. Imagine being that son, clinging with every finger as tight as you possibly can with every fibre of your being to your mum. Because that's what you're to do. It's what you know to do. You trust her. And then as he's falling, what will happen? Even after he's caught, which he was, to him, his age, mum's gone. She's not returning as he understands the world. Will he see her again? The fear is palpable, isn't it? It's harrowing to even look at the image, let alone to think what it was like there. I want you to picture that moment and that emotion you're feeling as something of a picture of the fear that Jesus' disciples might be feeling as he is leaving them, as he's leaving them scattered, without certainty, as he's about to endure his own flaming building of sorts, a death on a Roman cross. And his disciples are there being thrown out into the world, being thrown out into the world. They need to unite together. They need to to catch one another, if you like, as they fall in the rubble and flames of this broken world that they're living in, the looted world which burns around them. Their leader has left them. You can imagine the, the, the fearful questions of these followers of Jesus at this very point. If, if, he, if he dies, he's gone, isn't he? We've left everything for him, even our jobs, our livelihood, our families. What will we have left? Will we ever see him again? That child was thankfully reunited with his mother. She fought smoke and flames to get out of the building. But surely in the future that child will still ask as he recalls that moment, did you have to, Mum? Did you have to leave me to feel that fear? Was there any other way? I was scared. I thought you were gone. I wonder if at times we might feel those same feelings. You know, like the child as he fell or the people holding him, like the disciples, maybe we might ask too, does God really love us? Like the child, does mum really love me? Why would God love me? Maybe we are fearful followers of Jesus too in this broken and, and looted world that we live in. So we're going to read John 17. And really, I want you to picture this as this. John 17 is really this. It's listening in to a divine conversation. It's listening in to a divine conversation. We get to join the first fearful followers of Jesus and listen in to Jesus praying to his Father for himself and for them even, and even for us. 
And we're going to see Jesus' five pleas to his father. So I believe uh, Dion's going to read for us John 17. Um, if you've got a Bible there, uh, great to have that open. It'll come up on the screen as well, I believe. After Jesus, Jesus prays to be glorified, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might have eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ who you, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. <clears throat> I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. Whoops, sorry. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except that the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not... <coughs> Sorry, I'm having difficulty today because I've got problem with an eye. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me to the, into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and I will continue to make you known in order that you that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself 
maybe in them. Thanks, John. Does Jesus love his disciples? Does Jesus love his disciples? Does he love us? Does God really love us? I wonder if you heard some of those pleas to the Father. I've picked up five in here. There's probably more than five if we really be pedantic, but five pleas to his Father. We'll spend more time on the first of the five as we work through them. First is this. Jesus' plea, his, he prays, he pleads for honour through dishonour. Jesus pleads for honour through dishonour. Verse 1, Jesus looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Jesus is praying that he be honoured by his Father God and that through that honouring, Father to Son, that Jesus will reciprocate by honouring his Father. What's he talking about here? It's strange language, isn't it? I think verse 4 helps us as he takes it a little bit further. I've brought you glory on earth, he says, he prays, by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I think there's two clues here as to what Jesus is talking about. Him saying the hour has come, similar to when he says he's finished the work. And the second clue is that word glory or glorify. Again, not words we use very often, but the idea of being honoured, giving honour. And so I want to trace those two themes briefly in John's Gospel, just a few different chapters, starting right back in John chapter 1, in John's introduction really to this whole account, to the Gospel of John. He says there, Jesus, John writes of Jesus coming to earth, and he says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus coming to earth 2,000 odd years ago was a revealing of glory. His presence, his being was remarkable, it was unique. And because he is, who he is, is the reason. And because he came from God the Father, that makes it glorious. See, before this moment in history, only Adam and Eve had properly witnessed the, the unmediated, unrestricted presence of God. And even then, it's not quite this. Moses, we remember, got a fleeting look. Mount Sinai, he couldn't really see it all. In Jesus, we have a full revelation of God with this clarity and this glory far greater than even Moses saw. And the revelation not only looks different here in Jesus, it's got a different impact. God's law through Moses brought condemnation. But Jesus brings grace and truth. His glory in Jesus brings that grace and truth. And then if you flip to John chapter 2, there's the wedding in Cana. And John summarizes there what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus has a glory far more glorious than anyone who'd shown glory before him. Or if you flip over a few more chapters to John chapter 12, we get this. Jesus replied, The hour has come 
for the Son of Man to be glorified. Talking of himself, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So here we get both the hour and the glory in the same sentence from Jesus' lips. Jesus is the kernel of wheat in this mini parable he's telling here. His death is his being glorified, which then produces many seeds. I wonder if you've heard of how bushfires cause seed pods of some particular types of species to pop open and the seeds to spread. Maybe that's a bit of a picture of what's going on here. It's, it's painful, there's a fire, heat, but then the seeds spread and sprout and new growth appears. Jesus' death is that fire, the, the, the burning, the, the being glorified. There's a similar quote, I don't have it on the screen, in John chapter 13, where Jesus has washed the disciples' feet after Judas leaves to betray Jesus. And Jesus says there, now he, the Son of Man, is glorified. Something's happening. And so here in John chapter 17, verse 1, as Jesus prays out loud here that God may glorify his Son, he's praying a prayer of commitment to die, to be lifted up onto the cross, to rise to heaven, and in that way be honoured and, and praised. And through doing that, he will honour his Father. See, the cross as Jesus sees it is this. It's his crowning moment as king. Right through Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus has been perfectly obedient to his father. Back in verse 4, he says he's finished the work given to him. He's been obedient. He explains that as, as giving eternal life to all those who God has given him. He's been obedient to that end and now he commits to be obedient to what's to come. In this crowning glory moment, Jesus will obey. And he'll do it through the dishonour of people as he's mocked and even spat on, dishonoured, shamed even. And yet that ends, this hour ends with him in the glorious presence of God the Father, his Father, with the glory he had before the world began. It's not how we usually picture glory, is it? Well, that's Jesus' first plea, that he be honoured, and so he honours his Father. We'll move through the others a little faster. But I think that one is just really important to pick up. The second is verse 11. And we pick up Jesus' prayer in verse 9 as it really changes direction. Jesus prays for fortification for his fearful followers. Verse 9, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine and the glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Jesus prays for the fortification of these fearful followers. Holy Father, protect them. How? By your name so they may be united. And what, what does the Father need to protect them from? Have a look at verse 14 and 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. The evil one is a threat here, the threat, which is he threatens as he works through people. The disciples have seen it already. 
People have hated, as verse 14 says. The world has hated them, those who have the word. And if you notice there, the end of that, that they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. The world there, as Jesus understands it, is not so much a place like geographical, but it's oppositional. It's, it's everything that is opposed to God. And yet Jesus explicitly asks that his Father does not pluck people out of that. It's often what we want, isn't it? Take me away from the pain, from whatever it is going on that's oppositional. And Jesus wants them to remain in that and be those seeds that sprout from the dying kernel of wheat. But to do that, they need protection because Jesus will depart. They need God to identify them as his. That's what protection by God's name, I think, is about here. God's name is the great fortification, the great protector. I wonder if you've ever experienced a powerful person or being with a powerful person who's kind of covered you with their reputation and their power. So maybe a, a powerful CEO says something along the lines of, it's okay, make that decision, I've got your back. Or someone says, no, no, they're mine, they're with me. You know, the security guard ushering someone in, they're with me, and you think I'm safe because of the other. Challenge them and, and you're challenging me, <laughs> is implied. That's what's going on here. God's name, God protects but that does not mean it's not dangerous for Jesus' followers. Verse 12, have a look there. I think I've got it up on this. No, I don't have it on the slide, sorry. Or maybe I do. There it is, yes. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you've given me. No one's been lost except one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. Judas is the warning, isn't he? Take Judas as the warning. One's already been lost, is essentially what Jesus prays. Jesus' fearful followers here, they, they need the fortification of the faithful Father, and so Jesus prays to the Father for exactly that. Protect them. That's the second plea. The third is, is this. The holiness of the fearful followers. Verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you've sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Jesus doesn't just leave his fearful followers in the world. He sends them into it. It's deliberate. He wants them to stand out in the world. That idea of sanctify means to, to make holy, which maybe that just makes us even more confused, both... Uh, jargony kind of words these days, but to make sacred, to, to, to set something aside for a particular purpose. Like the holy implements in the temple were set aside for only use in particular functions within the temple sacrificial system. Now we've lost a lot of the meaning of that in our modern day, haven't we? We don't have many things we set aside for particular purposes, although there are some. And maybe you've got a pair of shoes that they're only for going out with a particular suit or a particular dress or to match those particular earrings. Maybe you've got a boat that is only for fishing and should never tow a wakeboard. Maybe you've got a knife or a chopping board that's only for meat and your partner or children use it another way and that reminds you that it's only for meat. 
To be sanctified, to be set apart, is to be for God. To be fully aligned with, with what God wants, his desires, to be fit for his purposes only. Jesus' fearful followers are to be holy in this unholy world. To be like God amidst those who are unlike God. It's a big ask, isn't it? Just be like God in this world that's so unlike God. But it's not without precedent. It's not without help. They are sent, verse 19, as Jesus was sent. They are sent as Jesus was sent. And Jesus even sanctifies himself. Which is a strange way of thinking, isn't it? This isn't about Jesus being unclean and suddenly becoming clean. But it's about Jesus recommitting himself to that obedience of the Father, to his special purpose, to be for God absolutely, even to death, for the sake of the people that he was sent to. Jesus commits to be the sacred amidst the unsacred. Is light in darkness, as the theme of your series has taken it. Why? Verse 19, that they too may be truly sanctified. That they, those he's praying for, may be set apart, may be different. That's Jesus' third plea for the holiness of his fearful followers in an unholy world. His fourth plea is for a broader group. A broader group. Verse 20, this is for the unity of future followers. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Just as you, Father, as just as you're in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, verse 22, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus' desire is for his followers to be united. And it permeates this whole prayer. It's predominant in this section, but it goes right through the prayer. And it's right through John's whole account. Unity, this theme just keeps on coming. Hopefully you've seen it over the past weeks. Why? Why is unity so important to Jesus at this point for his disciples? Well, it's a picture of who God is in himself. We see it all through this prayer. Verse 21, just as you are in me and I am in you. They may be one, verse 22, as we are one. Verse 23, you have loved them, have loved them as you have loved me. It's love one for the other. Back in verse 5, we get this, the glory I, have give, I had with you before the world began. This shared glory and, and presence of father to son. Verse 10, all I have is yours and all you have is mine. Shared resources, equal access. Verse 11, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, a shared name. Which in the ancient world was a shared identity, shared power. Or verse 14, I have given them your word, a shared voice. The nature of this oneness is the perfection of love, father to son, son to father. Now think of a married couple who you know, and you think, they are just really close. Just give you a moment, just, just think to yourself, who's someone you know, a couple you know, and you think, they are just so close. 
There's two ways we might think of a married couple as united, isn't there? One might be they're married under God, legally as well. They're united in that sense. But there's also this unity practice, this deep and abiding love a couple have for one another. I picture my wife's late grandparents who were just so close to one another, relationally united, connected. The oneness that Jesus prays for his followers here is more of that second relational union, unity. Yes, Jesus the Son, God the Father, with God the Spirit are one in being, but here the focus is on that relational connection, unity one for the other. And it's that depth of perfect love one for the other that Jesus prays for these followers, which emphasises the point that we, what we are as God's people together, is far more than just acquaintances or friends who happen to gather with a shared interest. But that's what we often look like, isn't it? That's what we often act like, which is a massive problem, a huge problem, because the depth of our unity is a key way for other people to know the unity within the Godhead, within God himself. God in perfect relationship in himself expressed through us and our unity with one another. God is in himself perfectly united and he desires that others come into that. Halfway through verse 21 we see, May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Or verse 23, Then by their complete unity the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So when we as, as Christians together lack a depth of unity one for the other, people do not know that Jesus was sent by the Father. Which he said earlier is eternal life. And because of our disunity, people also don't know that God the Father loves them with the same depth of love he has for his very own Son. Isn't that extraordinary and yet so challenging it's no wonder jesus pleads with the father for this fourth plea the unity of these followers us included even those of us from one end of the lake to the other that we might be united and let me say i've been encouraged this week to see your unity and you've included us in that unity which is exactly a reflection of what jesus is praying here that's jesus fourth plea his fifth is in verse 24 that his people's presence might be with him. Verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So Jesus' first followers, they saw his miracles, they heard him speak, and that in, in that sense they saw his glory. They, they witnessed like those at the wedding in Cana in Galilee. And so because of that, seeing his glory, his miraculous power, they honoured him and praised him. And very soon, his fearful followers are going to be called to witness that crowning glory moment as he's lifted up as king on the cross. But Jesus prays something more here for those first fearful followers and for those future followers, us included, that they will be where he is. 
Not so much in terms of physical location, but in terms of relationship. Jesus has shown his glory on earth. He's going to be glorified at the cross. He will rise from grave to ultimate glory to relationship with God the Father, as he had before the world began. Perfect glory. And it's there, sharing in that glorious relationship that he desires his future and even then fearful followers to be part of, to share in. Which is why he has promised to finish his work and then come back to return. That we might be where he is. Or more specifically, that we might be as he is. Experiencing the perfect intra-Trinitarian relationship we see in verse 26. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. We could spend days just on that verse alone, couldn't we? Jesus wants that for us. He wants that for us. He wants us to experience his presence, this experience of glory. I couldn't find a picture that did it better than this one, but we just can't picture it, can we? The picture of his glory. He wants that for us and for those that we see and he sees dwelling in darkness. And so my question for you is, do we want that for us? Do we want that for others? Or do we find the lesser glory of our present relationships all too comfortable? Our circumstances now are too appealing. The things of this world, they're the glorious things in our life. These are the five pleas of Jesus. Jesus prays for honour through dishonour, for the fortification of his fearful followers, for the holiness of those same fearful followers, for the unity of the future followers, and for all his people to be present with him. What an example that Jesus, even in this moment as he pictures his own crucifixion, is selfless to pray these things. What a privilege it is to listen in to this divine conversation. I asked that question at the beginning, does God really love us? Does God really love us? You might ask, does God really love me? And if he does, why would he? Well, this prayer is proof of his love. This prayer is proof of his love. For those of us who follow him and for those of us who don't, he loves us. Jesus knows the greatest love to the greatest possible extent. He knows fatherly love way beyond even that kind of love that the best fathers might have given to us. And even in the face of his own death and even through his own death, he commits to make that fatherly love known to us even. This is love. Why would he love us? It's not because we've earned it. It's an overflow of who he is in himself. An overflow of who he is in himself. Which may make you wonder, well, does that mean he does actually love us? If it's just an overflow of who he is in himself? Is it about him? Is it about us? We can imagine the child being thrown from that window. Asking that of the question, asking that of his mother. Does she really love me? Does God really love us? Disciples, Jesus' disciples asking that question of Jesus as he leaves them. You know, when we're struggling to love ourselves, 
when life's got us down, when our own actions have made us angry even with ourselves? Maybe rough mental health days make you ask that question, does God really love me? Maybe your bodies are failing and it hurts to move and you think, does God really love me? What about when we can't even express love to others and to ourselves as we used to? Does God love us? God's love for us, as we see in this prayer, is not circumstantial. It's not circumstantial. It's the grand overflow of who God is in himself, which means we can trust it, because this is who our God is. God acts in love to include us in his love. And we see it most obviously at Jesus' death and resurrection. It's how he makes it possible. This is an overflow of who God is in himself. And this intimate prayer that we get to listen in on has led us in on that picture of love. And so let me ask you as I finish, do you know that love? Do you know that love? Do you know the God of that love? For to know one is to know the other. Let me pray that you might, that we all might. Let me pray. Our great God, we thank and praise you for this love that you have in yourself, for it is who you are, and yet we get to experience it because of what you've done. You've made it possible, and we thank you. We pray that if we don't yet trust you, we don't trust you fully, we struggle to trust you, we struggle to love even ourselves, that we might know your love, your love for us and for one another, and that might spur us on to keep reaching out and express your overflow, your overflowing love for this world. Amen. Stay there, Nick. We're going to go to Q&A. He's, he's been to Bible college. Don't hold back. <laughs> Get stuck into him. Um, you can text it through if you want to stay anonymous or if you're online. But does anyone have a question or a comment? Something you want to share with us or ask of Nick? Thanks, Sue. Hi, Nick. One of the questions that came up in our study on Tuesday was to define glory. What is the definition of to glorify God? Yeah, what is the definition of to glorify God? Um, I wonder if it's one of those words, because we're talking of God and his glory, that we just can't fully define, we can't fully grasp, because we're doing it with human limitations. We're finite beings, he's infinite and glorious, and so we say, well, it's one of, he's, he's big, He's grand. Um, I've tried to use, you probably heard the word honour a bunch of times because I think it's a word we use more commonly, that we give God honour, um, we give God praise. Certainly the picture in the New Testament, thinking like Romans 12, is to give our all to God. So it's this idea that God is so worthy of our all, our everything, because he is just so worthy in himself, um, so worthy of honour. So maybe that's... Um, Helpful, but also unhelpful because we have this picture of God is just so grand and we can't define it, but that's good for us too. Yep. Any more? Oh, Alan, there he is. I just uh, wonder, Jesus was talking to the disciples and then in chapter 17, he's praying. I'm just wondering what the disciples are doing. Are they... With him, are they listening? Do they understand what he's saying? 
Yeah, I mean, this whole thing is in um, the, the upper room that uh, he, from the moment of he's washing the disciples' feet, it seems it's all there together. Um, and we have a bunch of recorded words, a few chapters of them. Uh, it seems that the disciples are there and he's praying with them overhearing and yet in deep unity and relationship and love to his Father. And so, you know, as a person, as we might pray, often we're uh, very aware of those around us, maybe more than aware of the God we're praying to. Maybe Jesus is the opposite of that, that Jesus is so aware of his relationship with God and his love one for the other, as we talked about, that he's praying as if the disciples aren't there, and yet they're there, uh, overhearing this. And so it's a teaching prayer in that sense, um, but he's relationally, I think, is the key. Any more? Oh, they're all going so easy since Liam went on long service leave. Um, we're going to have a moment to reflect on that. The band's going to come up uh, and we'll sing another song. It's a great moment to, yeah, let that stuff sink in uh, and, and to reflect on these great truths in the song as well.